morning, everyone. And happy Pride. This is the holiday where we celebrate love and acceptance. And we acknowledge that it is the birthright of each of us. I hope people enjoyed the festival and the parade. And I also really, I must confess, enjoyed the rain. I hope you did too. Yay! I'm Kai Flannery, and I get to be here to speak with you this morning. Um, I am a UU chaplain, and I work in the Austin area. Um, And welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're here, we try to manifest the love and acceptance of Pride Weekend every week, every day. And we try to remember that everybody is, is worthy and everybody deserves dignity. We're a congregation of many faiths. All major world religions are represented in our congregation, including earth-based spirituality, atheism. This is a safe space to be who you are. That is what we work toward in terms of gender or immigration status, in terms of race. And so let us light our chalice this morning, speaking the chalice lighting in our program with those those ideals in mind. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. I'm Tomas Medina, and I will be your light leader today. And our uh, call to worship is number 657 in your this booklet, or hymnal. Um, it's a responsive reading, and I will read the non-italic parts, and then if you could read the italic parts with me, that would be awesome. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feelings of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are like shadows, clouding children's days with fears of unknown calamities. Other beliefs are like sunshine, blessing children with the warmth of happiness. Some beliefs are divisive, separating the saved from the unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in a rural community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Some beliefs are like blinders, shutting off the power to choose one's own direction. Other beliefs are like gateways, opening wide vistas for exploration. Some beliefs weaken a person's selfhood, They blight the growth of resourcefulness. Other beliefs nourish self-confidence and enrich the feeling of personal worth. Some beliefs are rigid, like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable, like the young saplings, ever-growing with the upward thrust of life. We have on the wall in front of us a hard-won mission statement that I'll ask you all to speak with me in unison. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our 
Our meditation reading today is by Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbor worthy. So we'll be talking, we are talking this morning some about truth. And I would say that one of the truths from which all other true things come is the fact that we are worthy of love, and so is the person next to us. And so is the person across from us in a never-ending line. So let us begin by closing our eyes and engaging in some breathing together. And in this breathing this morning, you can follow a Buddhist path toward kindling that fire of inherent worth and dignity. That's called metta. And all we do is offer ourselves wishes for health. May I be healthy. Wishes for happiness. Wishes for peace and well-being. May I be peaceful and at ease. Wishes for safety. May I be safe. And as we start that spark for ourselves and those closest to us. Let us extend that broader into this church, into this neighborhood, into this city, into this country, into this, oh, I forgot this state, into Texas, and into this world. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we be peaceful and at ease. And may we be safe. Let's take a few final breaths together in silence. Sending that love and acceptance and those good wishes toward ourselves, our community, and our world.
So, I'm here this morning to talk a little about truth-telling. And I will say it's easy to deliver your truth in sermon form. Um, You get to pull together your argument and write it out. Then you get to read it to people. (laughs) Take up 15 to 20 minutes of your time, uninterrupted mostly. Um, And we all know it's much harder in real life. And I see heads that are grayer than mine that have been telling difficult truths, I imagine, since I was wearing diapers. And so I'm going to offer you my truth this morning, and I want to hear what you've got, too. So I think it's hardest sometimes to tell our truth, the thing that's stirring right here, when we don't think someone will care, when there's no one to help, when we don't want to risk a relationship, when we're kind of low on the totem pole. As Ashley Judd, one of the actresses who helps you start the Me Too movement, one of the women who helped to start the Me Too movement, who is also an actress, she spoke out about some of the terrible treatment she'd received from Harvey Weinstein, and she said, what, were we supposed to call some fantasy attorney general of moviedom? <sighs> no, that person doesn't exist. It can be hard to tell the truth. It can put us in a place that feels dangerous or is dangerous. But let's face it, universalism, particularly, infuses how we view our lives and the lives of others. We don't believe that anybody is condemned And we believe that everybody and everything is interconnected. So the time is ripe for us to get talking and sharing our truths. With neighbors, with lawmakers, with family members, with oil companies, with educators. And I want to ask you this morning, some of the great truth tellers, who are they in your life? Who are the people that you, is there one person that springs to mind? Somebody who just lays it right out there in an undeniable way. I would say also my grandmother. She tells it in such a kind way that even when it's difficult, you can sort of hear it. You just breathe deep and take it in. And I also, as in putting together this sermon, um, I got inspired by a woman who told the truth in such with such beauty and such conviction that she actually made it part of her name, Sojourner Truth. And I just think of her in Akron, Ohio, her little glasses at the Ohio Women's Convention in May of 1851. Five male pastors had spoken earlier in the program, one a universalist, in fact, and all had given theological reasons that it was inappropriate for women to have the vote or even really to speak in public to advocate for themselves. Nobody asked Sojourner to speak. The organizer, a white woman named Frances Gage, allowed her to speak. But according to her autobiography, all around her were these rumbles, like, don't let her speak, don't get her up there, what is she doing? There were these rumbles. But still, Frances Gage introduced her. This Sojourner Truth. If you were striving for respectability at this time, it was considered unseemly for a woman to speak in assemblies or in churches. Olympia Brown, in our tradition, wasn't ordained by the Universalists until 1863. 
And that was still a a fight. It was a stretch. But Sojourner steps up to the podium. And she says, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. And she shows the muscles in her arm. I've plowed and planted. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I've borne five children and seen most sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? And I just think of the courage that it took her to say that to a room full of white women confronting us with our small-mindedness or stereotypes about strength and womanhood and blackness all at once. There's a book I've been uh, paying attention to. I don't know if people are familiar with it called Crucial Conversations. Do people know this book? Yeah. Um, And I really recommend it. I like it a lot. It just, it helps walk you through the minutia of having a really difficult conversation and bringing your truth. And sort of having looked at that and thought about experiences of truth-telling in my life, I feel like there are three basic steps with a lot of detail and difficulty. We must know our truth first. Then we must share our truth while staying in connection. And then we must find the path forward together. And I think what this asks of us, as you mentioned, Something that Lois has is bravery, courage. Also requires listening, an act of translation, and finally an act of creation, I think. But how do we know our truth? Sometimes threats to our health or safety or financial stability or physical needs or our immigration status means it isn't safe to tell a truth that needs to be told. The first rule of caring for each other is believing that we each know what is safest for us and to honor that really deeply. But within the bounds of your safety, can I ask you this morning, is there something you really need to tell the truth about right now? It's possible to shy away from the truth, even inside our own hearts, because it's so messy. Because we suspect people don't want to hear it. Because we're ashamed of it. Maybe it's ugly or painful. And it takes time to transform the things that might be holding us back. Do we really want connection? Are we failing to be fair? Are we afraid? Buddhist teacher and climate activist Joanna Macy, she talks about our fear of climate disaster and how hard it is to even look at what is happening to the planet right now. In Buddhism, it's understood that fear keeps us ignorant of our own motivations and our, fe- and our feelings, not to mention the feelings or motivations of others. So this path to knowing our own truth involves facing our fear and being with fear. 
After all, we can't ask for an honest conversation. We can't ask for others to be brave and lay something on the line unless we set the example. And I know personally, I don't know if this happens for you, but I get this kind of ding when that falls into place. When I am being honest, seeing a big enough perspective that both the other person's truth and my truth can fit together, when I believe I can see a person's goodness and good intent, while also knowing that I have a piece of the truth that they need. And it's my job to walk with them to this truth, starting with what we both want and showing a path to how I believe we can get there. A woman who does this beautifully is Rigoberta Minchu. I'll read to you a bit from her 1992 Nobel acceptance speech. Peace cannot exist without justice. Justice cannot exist without fairness. Fairness cannot exist without development. Development cannot exist without democracy. Democracy cannot exist without respect for the identity and worth of cultures and peoples. We are not myths of the past. We are people. We are not ruins in the jungles. We are not zoos. We want to be respected, not to be victims of intolerance or racism. It is said that our indigenous ancestors, Mayas and Aztecs, made human sacrifices to their gods. It occurs to me to ask how many humans have been sacrificed to the gods of capital in the last 500 years. Mic drop. She's done such hard work figuring out what is in her heart and also working through the dominant narrative and what it said about her and her people. I hear her walking people along the path from the end goal, which is peace, back to the respect for the cultures and identities of all people. I hear her facing her fear. Here's what they're saying about us. They say we're animals, savages. It took a lot of courage for her to make that statement. There's something so strong and undeniable, though, when we face our fear. We can't connect with others on the issue of racism, for instance, unless we've connected with our own racism. I'll tell you a story about that. Um, there was a man that I met at a church where I worked in Boston, and he did the cleaning in the office. He's a young man, maybe his early 20s. He was dark-skinned. He, he and I became friendly over time, and I learned that his family was from the Dominican Republic. He had a really lovely little boy, and we read books together sometimes. He'd had some brushes with the law, but he was now doing better. And I was just really getting to know him. I liked him. He was soft-spoken and eager to learn new things. And one day, I was already in the office, and he came in a little late, and I couldn't figure out what was going on with him. I asked him the regular questions. How are you? How's your morning so far? He didn't seem to comprehend my questions. He wasn't able to really give any meaningful answer. Just sort of um, hemmed and hawed. And I sort of stepped back and I just let him be and went about my day. And I started to wonder, and just in the back of my mind, I wondered if... If maybe I'd gotten it wrong, maybe he wasn't very smart and he wasn't understanding me. And I didn't even realize that was an assumption that I had made or a thought that I had in my head until I really took time to think about it. Did he not understand my questions? So, luckily for me, um, 
there was a listening circle that happened later that month. There's this great um, tradition of listening circles that comes out of listening to survivors of intimate partner violence. Um, and they're all over the country, and there happened to be one at this community center in that neighborhood later that month. It was talking and listening, and it was facilitated so that people could talk about their experience of race in Boston. So I learned that, I learned by being in that circle that, with him that day. I learned what happened that day. Um, I learned that on the way to work, he had his one-and-a-half-year-old son in the back seat of his car, in the green car. There had gone, some bullets and had gone out for the police that said, you're looking for a black man in a green car. And so he had been pulled out of his car on the way to work. He had been face down in the street in the rain um, for about 45 minutes in front of his son, who's still in the back of the car. Um, and, yeah, and he needed to go home. He needed to change. He had been humiliated in front of his child. Um, and all of this on his way to work. Okay, so, and there, how could he have articulated that to me on that morning, in that moment? There's no way. Um, so suddenly, in that circle, that circle of listening, I felt that grief and horror with him. Him telling his truth was me claiming a sorrow that had been mine all along. <laughs> I just didn't know it. Kind of a cultural grief. And the grief that one feels when one is living in a police state. One of us was. One of us wasn't. I've been reading lately a lot from Francis Weller, who's a therapist and a grief counselor in California. And he has, this, he has these great ideas about grief in our culture and how we need to bring it forward to each other. He writes, we send into shadow the parts of ourselves that we deem unacceptable to ourselves or to others, hoping to disown them. The lack of courtesy and compassion surrounding grief is astonishing, reflecting an underlying fear and mistrust of this basic human experience. We must find the courage once again to walk the wild edge of grief. If we don't know how to feel one another's pain when they've had a death in the family, how can we grapple as a culture with the effects of slavery, of failing refugees and asylum seekers? How can we willingly get into the imaginary space of understanding what we're doing to this planet minute by minute? Talk about courage. We need a lot of it to face the grief that we've got under the surface right now. And I know we want to escape discomfort. We shape our lives to get away from it. I know I have the comfiest mattress that I could possibly get at home. And other things. We want to make our lives cozy. But as Pema Chodron points out, it is the definition of ego to get away from our own experience. Because it never quite adds up to inner strength. It just makes us more scared and more uptight. I think we're holding back. I think we're just keeping a distance between ourselves and others so we can be safe. But really, it isolates us. It cuts us off. So I just want to ask us this morning, what are the things that bring us courage? Because those are the things that help us to share our truth while staying in connection. And this is that act of translation. 
When I tell the story I just shared with you about my friend who was harassed because he was a man of color driving a green car, it becomes easier for people who haven't understood how racism functions in our society to get how deep it runs, how much it hurts, how much it hurts both of us, him and me, and how until I knew about it, he was carrying all of the heaviness and grief of that experience. So I'm not often going to tell someone the truth about their own racism. But I will tell them the truth of my racism. And that's opened up more than one conversation. Because that's my story, my vulnerability, my shame, and my grief. Jungian psychologist James Hillman writes about the gift of individuation, really stepping out there and being different from those around us, really taking that risk. He says, this transparent person who is seen and seen through, who is foolish, who has nothing left to hide, who has become transparent through self-acceptance, her soul is loved and wholly revealed. She is just what she is, freed from concealment. Her transparency serves as a prism for the world. I like this idea so much. When we have the courage to be seen and seen through, we become prisms. You know how being around a really truthful person is like being around a clear light when they, lose, when they use that power well. I think that's what he means. Sometimes the truth is simple and that doesn't mean it's easy to say. I don't like the way this conversation is going. I'm sorry, I don't think it's at all fair to say that Muslim people are dangerous. I don't see evidence that this is the case. I see changes happening in our environment, and I'm afraid for us. If you want to talk seriously, we need to talk in terms that are serious and respectful. I know you're a person of faith, and I expect more compassion from you. For me, this is the hardest part, engaging with another person's truth in a way that's honest, speaks with I statements, and doesn't resort when I don't move into silence or violence. So silence, withholding information from the dialogue to avoid creating a problem. That could, avoid, that could include avoiding, not addressing the real issues, shifting the focus to other people. It could include masking, understating or selectively showing what you actually think withdrawing, or even exiting the room or the conversation. And then there's violence, which is convincing, controlling, or compelling others to your view. We could cut others off or overstate facts. We could speak in absolutes. We could dominate the conversation in one way or another. We can label, stereotype, name, call. We could attack, belittle, or threaten. As truth finders, we run into our own discomfort, thinking about our own truth. As truth tellers, we're likely to run into our own and other people's cognitive dissonance at that point. Holding two or more contradictory beliefs or values. How could we be walking through everyday life like things are normal if our planet is in crisis? How could a man I've been friendly with cross the line into assault or harassment? I always thought other people were racist. What if I am too? At that point in a difficult conversation, it's our work 
not to get hooked on our own emotion and not to get hooked on other people's, but to try to get them disentangled if they're stuck. And that means creating safe space, which we've been working to practice in this congregation for a long time. When someone you're talking to begins to move into silence or violence, we can recognize it. We can say, hey, what's happening for you right now? We can address the kind and generous soul in front of us who's not feeling safe. How can we help to reduce the feelings of unsafety while not stepping away from our truth? I've done this with my mom. I'll just say, Mom, can we talk about what this is bringing up for you? Kind of the meta level, the overview conversation. Yeah, and as you might imagine, those of you who have kids, she said, don't you chaplain me. (laughs) I didn't stop, though. In a really defensive place, a person is wanting to be able to relax and trust, but can't. They don't know how. So we have to establish, sometimes over time, that our, lo- our, our approach is loving and dependable. As Marge Piercy wrote, we fight persistently like the vine that brings down the tree. And I don't know if you all are aware of, if a challenge that you have is being aware of the other person's emotions and holding our own at the same time. One of the things we can do with that is a Tonglen practice. So it's just a breathing practice. It's breathing in what's difficult, and it's breathing out something lighter. Breathing in what's difficult, breathing out something lighter. Breathing in what's difficult, allowing it to transform and open our heart. Breathing out something lighter. And that's what helps us find the way forward. The examples of this courage are all around us, in this congregation, in the Me Too movement. Isabel Pascual is a 42-year-old person who picks strawberries. She was interviewed in Time magazine when Time named the Me Too ladies their person of the year. Isabel is not her real name. Isabel was harassed in the workplace by a man who threatened to harm her and her children. That's why I kept quiet, she said. I felt desperate. I cried and cried, but thank God my friends in the field supported me. So I said, enough. I lost the fear. It doesn't matter if they criticize me. I can support other people who are going through the same thing. Isabel spoke out about sexual harassment while working without documents. Part of the creativity of finding the path forward is going where we don't normally go, where others reside. Me Too is a movement of both movie stars and migrant workers. People continuing to put themselves on the front line for others. There's that incredible courage again. When finding our path through truth together, practice courage, listening, translation, creativity, and I believe we must also cultivate cheerfulness. In Shambhala Buddhism, there are several sources of energy and power for the self, different sources of life force. And the one they call wind horse, he describes Trungpa, Chogyang Trungpa, describes as gallantry, cheerfulness, upliftedness, gentleness, primordial confidence. So I wish that for each of us this morning. Primordial confidence.
Taking up the path of truth, of course, does not mean we are perfect. And in fact, if we are perfect, we are probably not practicing very much. As Thomas More wrote it, another mystic priest, the soul becomes greater and deeper through the living out of the messes and the gaps. That is the negative way of the mystics. So what's the worst that could happen? Let me ask you that question. If you speak that difficult truth that's waiting to come out, in a place where you don't know how you would possibly say it, in company that's too complicated, in a family gathering, what's the worst that could happen? If your answer is, I could die, at least emotionally, that it would be really frightening for you. Let me give you these words of Sojourner Truth. I'm not going to die. I'm going to go home like a shooting star. Thank you. So let's extinguish our chalice together with the words from our order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Yeah. So let us bless one another this morning as seekers of truth. Remember, we have to start with the courage to listen. In the words of John O'Donohue, to all that is chaotic in you, let there come silence. Let there be an opening into the quiet that lies beneath the chaos, where you find the peace you did not think possible, and see what shimmers in the storm. Let us bless one another as sharers of our truth. It is in us to offer safety for ourselves, in our words, for others. In the words of Audrey Lord, when we speak, we are afraid. We are afraid our words will not be heard or welcomed, but when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Let us bless each other as finders of the path forward. In the, room, in the words of Rumi, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. May it be so. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.